You're listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast with Michael Webb. B2B sales and marketing works to find the highest quality prospects, reach decision makers, and sell value. Operational excellence uses data and systems thinking to make changes that cause improvement and eliminate waste. My name is Michael Webb, and this is the Sales Process Excellence Podcast. In the next 30 to 40 minutes, we're going to destroy the myth that these two groups conflict and show you how to bring both strategies together to create more wealth for your company and your customers. Some people focus on reaching decision makers, making sales calls, and selling value. Other people focus on data and cause and effect and statistical relevance. In this podcast, we put both of those things together to create wealth for everyone. Hello, my name is Michael Webb, and this is the Sales Process Excellence Podcast. I'm pleased today to have a uh, fantastic person uh, on our show. Uh, His name is Robert Tripp. He has a very long career as a consultant and a trainer and a master black belt. Robert, welcome here. Yes, thank you, Michael. It's good to be here on the call with you. So Robert is uh, with a firm, Argo LLC. Robert, for our audience, please provide a little, you know, where did you come from and how did you get where you are and what does Argo LLC do? When I began my career uh, a few decades ago, I never would have thought that I would, I guess, evolve into a space that um, allowed me to concentrate in in process improvement and process excellence and uh, quality management systems. But but it all really began back in 1995. I had been working in in the finance community um, in a manufacturing organization. back in 1995, and uh, I, I got tapped on to engage in a, in a Six Sigma um, training effort and become a black belt, and I thought it seemed new and unique and different, and I thought, yes, let's give it a try. So I started down the path in 1995, was eventually certified as a master black belt uh, soon after that, and by 1998, I was I was consulting, and, and that was just at the time when the industry was really starting to... Uh, to to become active um it you know there are a couple of small deployments early on uh, you know starting with with motorola and then it moved into a little bit with texas instruments and abb and then allied signal i was working at allied signal at the time um but but then beginning in 1998 I, i was able to begin working with a lot of different clients and and that's when my consulting career started and I started on the path of, of designing deployments, creating content, um, delivering training, coaching projects, developing people and leaders in the excuse me in the organization to um, to drive six Sigma within their own communities. Um, and and somewhere along the line there is a merger between the whole concept of, of Six Sigma and Lean and the, and, and the ideas around both and how they really complement each other. And so I'd say around the mid-2000s, it became more of an effort around um, marketing and, and involving myself in Lean Six Sigma. And, and really, that's what I've been doing since then. Um, for the last few years, I've been working um, with, a, uh, with a number of different clients, but, but really in a small 
uh, cluster of, of, of close partners. And in the last six months, I've been, I've been independent. So it's, a, it's been an interesting path. And, and the company that I have, that I have created is Argo LLC. And we, uh, we basically work with organizations, um, large, small, medium sized to deploy continuous improvement tools. And it, and, and it ranges from grand corporate wide deployments, which I'm working on right now, um, to smaller deployments, which just involves training and coaching a few projects. You know, the, the, the landscape has changed. So the versatility and being able to apply the tools in different environments is important. And uh, based on the, you know, the history, I think, I think we're able to uh, do that. You've been at a perch where you could watch, um, the industry sort of unfold and watch the changes that have taken place. So what have you observed? Well, I think one of the most interesting things that I've observed, it's really in, in the late nineties, early two thousands, six Sigma was a foreign concept. Um, Lean was a foreign concept. And, and while maybe, you know, maybe organizations, Coming out of the manufacturing arenas had great familiarity with, with similar tools, if not tools of the same name. Um, the, the broader scope of industries, including financial services, healthcare, um, uh, a, a lot of different government offices, things like this, that they, they did not have exposure to Six Sigma. But as, as we sort of evolved and developed through the, through the 2000s and, and in the last, you know, five to 10 years, it's really become ubiquitous. Almost everybody you run into certainly has heard of Lean and Six Sigma. And if they have, and, and in addition to that, they've, they've had some exposure either, either in terms of, um, participating in Lean Six Sigma deployments at a former employer or being part of projects or, or even maybe, um, taking classes through, uh, through post uh, you know, through through collegiate courses and things like that so it's it's um it's been interesting to watch the general level of awareness increase but with that also comes a level of lack of awareness in the same way so so in other words the that people are getting exposed to it at a, at a very superficial level they know conceptually what it is but they are not familiar still with with how to deploy it and how to execute to really drive um, drive results for the organization. So what is the percentage of Six Sigma deployments that actually achieve the goals that their companies uh, start out with? You know, whether it's the, the stated goals as, as they're put down on paper and published to the rest of the organization to justify the resources being, being the time and effort being spent to deploy it, that may be a little bit different than the vision and the hopes that, that the people deploy it. Um, want to achieve. So, so starting with the stated goals, you know, it's, it's 90 to 100 percent. I, I don't think that, you know, that the payback on, on Lean and Six Sigma is never, um, or I don't think it's ever a, a negative payback. The, the challenge is, you know, are you really reaching the cultural, you know, DNA of the organization? And that's where things fail. Um, and it takes time to do that and takes patience and, and, and persistence to make that happen. But um, in addition, that sort of cultural transformation is difficult to measure. So to, to say that there's a specific goal in that arena, I think, is is a little bit difficult. But I, but I would also say that there are a lot of people that are not that are not satisfied with the way that their deployments are, um, I guess, sustained within the organization's management system over time. 
So I have heard statements, not just about Six Sigma deployments, but about also other kinds of deployments, lean deployments and so forth, that, you know, it's typical in the industry that more than 80% of these initiatives end up not, they end up being disappointing, they end up not actually achieving the goals and objectives. Have you heard that? Yeah, I, I, I have heard that sort of thing. And I, and I would agree to the extent that they have not achieved the sustainability and the cultural transformation that the proponents are looking for. However, what they do achieve is certainly bringing some level of improvement in customer satisfaction and a level of improvement of internal um, process quality performance. And with that, uh, financial results that uh, pay for the resources invested in the deployment. So that, that being said, yes, no question, there are a lot of deployments that, that do not exceed the overall, not exceed, but achieve the overall goal. But I would not say that they were a waste of time. Well, let's examine that dark side there for a minute about mm-hmm. not achieving the cultural. I mean, I have um, heard the term even Six Sigma Nazis. <laughs> Inside of a big company, the Six Sigma department ends up attempting to enforce some standards on how projects are done. And to the people doing the work, it ends up feeling like process for process sake. In fact, when I was writing sales and marketing the Six Sigma way, there was a fellow who had a great um, project and I included it in my book and he was frustrated with his company. He had to confess that the company did not accept that project, even though it had business results, because he didn't follow the rules that they had set out. He didn't use particular uh, statistical methods and yeah, they were Six Sigma Nazis. Um, what do you attribute that to? The actual causes of, of that sort of behavior is, is probably very different from one corporate culture to the next. However, I would say that there's a general theme where, where people seem to like the convenience of checklists. And that being said, they, they like to be able to have a, a standard format, a standard set of tools, even a standardized way of thinking that makes them feel good about what they're doing. Because if they can check everything off the list, then they feel like they were, they were doing things the right way. The problem with that is checklists such as this and trying to force people into a specific way of thinking does not make you many friends. Okay, I mean, the, the human condition is we all want to have our, our own way of solving problems and, and, and we want to be able to make our own contribution in our own way. And I think the problem here is that a lot of times lean and succeeding and continuous improvement approaches tend to force everybody into a you know, very um, constrained way of, of, of thinking about solving problems. And in the end, if you try to sustain a deployment or, or a cultural change, the, the people in the organization have to buy into it. And, and they're not going to buy into it unless they see value, unless they see uh, benefit both to them and to their working environment coming from the, uh, the, the changes you're trying to initiate. So when, when Six Sigma is deployed in a very structured and rigid and, and, um, I'm not going to use the word discipline because there has to be discipline behind it. 
But when it's deployed in a structured and rigid way, then I think you turn people away from it. And, and that certainly creates difficulties in, in capturing that sustainable initiative that a lot of people are looking for. Yeah, it's kind of a, a baby in the bathwater kind of a problem here. You, it is. You, you, and it goes both ways. If you are a trying to uh, help your organization get the most out of this methodology, you know that rules of thought and rules of evidence have to be followed. Um, mm -hmm. But then you could end up with the backlash of some sales guy somewhere or some general manager somewhere saying, you know, we're doing these training projects, but they're just training projects. Projects, we're not getting any benefit from it. But then likewise, I have heard many times of companies, had one just last fall, where the company had started down the path toward a, a process excellence, operational excellence initiative, take a very skilled person, put them at the head of that initiative, run with it for six months, and then financial pressures start hitting them. So they end up putting them in charge of a couple plants down in Texas. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not a corporate mm -hmm. commitment and it isn't didn't pay off quick enough and that's a baby in the bathwater thing too, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and um so so I, I wanna try to kind of parse out um what's going on with that. And so let me ask you another question, because you made a comment to me earlier. Um, before we got on our call here, you said, you know, the kind of the Six Sigma industry, early in this call, you said we grew, starting in the 90s, grew really fast. And then before we talked, you said it's kind of plateaued a little bit. It kind of leveled off. So there's a number of companies out there that have adopted it, and there's a demand and a need for the kind of knowledge that is required to to be effective uh, using the Six Sigma approach. But why do you think it leveled off? I think the market got saturated. I, I think enough people had been introduced to it, they had tried it, but there wasn't an organizational infrastructure to support them in the application of the Six Sigma um, concepts or leading Six Sigma concepts in a uh, in a structured way. And so, you know, the, the, the interest sort of dies off. Now, what's interesting to me is um, going back going back to your to your comments you were making just a moment ago is yes, there is a lot of um, latent exposure to lean and six sigma and continuous improvement tools, and I'm working with a client right now where you know they haven't had for about seven years they haven't had a a large bureaucracy that is a leader of six sigma reporting you know two or three levels down from the CEO. Uh, whose sole objective is to drive Six Sigma. This is this is kind of uh, this experience that I'm talking about is a is a client who's trying to build Six Sigma. I'll say from the middle out, meaning that they they have a middle manager who manages a fairly large budget um, and is offering training through his through his budget and through his organization to his own. Um, employees as well as anyone else in the company who wants to join. Okay. And they're applying the tools and the projects, uh, it, excuse me, the tools and the, uh, and the concepts and projects, documenting the projects and say, and you know, sort of advertising the work saying, Hey, if you want to join the training, um, 
<laughs> you're welcome to. Now, the, the company does support him in the sense that there is an internal mechanism for charging back the, the cost of the students going to the training, but it's much cheaper than the students going to the training externally. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, there are a lot of people who say, yeah, we're interested. And, and yes, we're happy to get our certificate, gain our certification through attending the training within this, you know, corporate unit. Um, whose whose primary job is, has nothing to do with Six Sigma, but they found it valuable to themselves and were willing to open it up to the rest of the organization, and it's growing. And, and what's exciting about that is you're getting pulled from the rest of the organization because they see value, they see it deliver benefits, but we haven't created a massive bureaucracy and infrastructure to to support it. So that when the financial winds change, all that really needs to happen is we just adjust sort of the focus of the projects to focus on the critical financial issues of the day. We don't have to worry about paying for what's perceived as a bureaucracy that doesn't really add value to the organization. Yeah, I, and I think that that's an interesting observation. I, I have also seen that in some companies there is a sort of a natural pull uh, among middle management that they want something like this, they need something like this, but there is no corporate, uh, uh, at least not with a huge funding, you know, some sort of mm -hmm. corporate bureaucracy that has a, a quota imposed on it for how many millions of dollars of cost savings that they're going to claim each year. Yeah, and a whole organizational structure of people managing other people and responsible for, for projects. They, they keep it very, very simple. But what's great is it's organic. And, and people are joining this because they want to and they see the value in the way of thinking. You know, the interesting thing is what the leading Six Sigma trying to do is it, it, it's trying to obviously improve processes, but it's also trying to develop people. And it's trying to give people a, a sort of a, a, a consistent and disciplined approach to to, to addressing problems in the organization using data and, and some analytical techniques. But it's not trying to force it down their throat. And, and, and these concepts, while they're, while they're not new, okay, the idea of applying them in unique and different situations is exciting to people because they can see that you can, you can really apply your own sense of creativity and your own contribution to a project working with your project team to, um, to solve a variety of different issues in the organization. One of the things we like to do is we like to talk about, talk to the people about thinking of themselves not as people with a title or a certification, green belts or black belts, but essentially, you know, many entrepreneurs within the organization that develop a portfolio of projects and, and, and going through this training offers a tremendous, or this development offers a tremendous opportunity to really um, do something in the organization that they can document and, and share with the rest of the organization as they progress through their own career path. And, and, and it's exciting to see people take that on and, and, and really engage in this notion of, yes, there is a, a certain entrepreneurial spirit that, that's alive here because every time you want to sell an idea, you are a salesperson, you have to justify through, through significant and, and rigorous study, you have to, you, you have to find the right people to network and um, make your ideas um, readily accessible to people to other people in the organization and that's how you that's how you build a name for yourself and, and help develop your career yeah so people are using it as an instrument to help themselves they see it as a way to help solve problems and they distinguish themselves by their ability to actually do that of course 
Yes. Now, where companies run into trouble, in my opinion, is they undermine that process and that spirit of self-development. And again, I'll say the spirit of entrepreneurialism. They undermine that by creating black belt or green belt positions that they go externally to hire and fill from the outside. Because then the position becomes a destination point. It doesn't become a path for people to flow through onto something else. And once you create it and you define it as a destination point, it tends to it tends to put a um, you know it, it, it's like throwing water on a fire. I mean, it really puts a damper on the uh, on the energy behind. The, the, the sort of grassroots trying to gain these tools and concepts and ideas and apply them to their own organization as a way to benefit their own careers. Well, I think there's another thing uh, that might be going on sort of surreptitiously uh, in the background. I, I believe Six Sigma was formulated to, to sell to senior executives. It was very marketable in that it was very palatable. Here's a set of rules. You've got engineers. There's hard evidence here. You follow these rules, D-M-A-I-C, train people to go through this. Everybody, like GE, approached it, a very top-down, very command and control company. And so take this Six Sigma pill and, you know, force it down your throat and get some results from it and, uh, you know, fire the bottom 10% of the organization, and that's how you make this beast get better. Right. Yeah, you know that that's really interesting, and it gets back to the point you were making before. With why has you know, or why has the industry sort of uh, um, plateaued? And that may be one of the core reasons. It's not new, and it's not exciting as a as an initiative for executives to buy into. Right, and there's enough backlash out in the marketplace. Um, yep. But you know, I, I it's it's interesting. Toyota is, uh, and, and, and in the whole continuous improvement world, um, people who've worked for Toyota um, don't always have the same view of continuous improvement as people communicate or describe it as. Uh, I had a, a, a client, a potential client, I'll say, they never actually became a client. And I learned many years later that the reason for that was that, because I work with VPs of sales instead of VPs of manufacturing or also uh, mm-hmm. general managers, but I, all my work is focused around sales and marketing, right? The VP of sales in this company was adamantly opposed to any kind of process work. And not because he's a concrete head or he didn't get it, right? He was doing a pretty good job and he knew that he should measure stuff. But his wife had worked for a number of years at a Toyota plant and had been treated in such a way that she thought it was awful. And he absorbed that kind of attitude. And so there was no way that I was going to win this company as a client when the VP of sales is adamantly blocking the door. No way, right? Mm -hmm. And he was making his numbers. So he didn't really have a big problem that had to be solved. And the president of the company backed down and said, okay, well, we're not going to force this issue. Um, So I don't – the whole – I think there's a lot of confusion out there in how this is positioned. Another clue, the industry is organized, sort of semi-organized, right? There's the Six Sigma-oriented people. There's the Lean-oriented people. There's the Continuous Improvement people, the you know the Dimming um, people, the Shingo-oriented uh, people. 
And uh, honestly, with the exception possibly of the shingle-oriented people, the number one concern you hear or complaint or frustration of people in the industry, and you tell me if, if you've heard this as well, is that it's, it's difficult for the practitioners to get senior management to pay attention. To recognize this stuff is important for the whole company. It's important to senior management. It's not just a tool for the shop rats. It's not just a tool for the people in the plant or the engineering department, right? And they have trouble getting that message across. Have you seen that also? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, if, if we can engage the people who are going through the training and applying the tools and facilitating teams to deliver successful projects, you know, it, it, the, the, the deployment as a whole is only successful if we, if we deliver results project by project. And it's always going to be difficult to work with management who, ha who have to make decisions based on several criteria, not just those that are of interest to the specific project team. So it gets back to the practitioner, of, of, whether it's a green belt or a black belt, the person facilitating these improvement teams, it, it gets back to these pr practitioners understanding what they need to sell to the senior management to help their solutions be better accepted in the organization. And it's not always an easy formula to follow. And in fact, this is part of the challenge. It's not formulaic. You can't make, again, we'll get back to the checklist conundrum. You can't make this a checklist. You would have to make this something that people evaluate the circumstances of their own situation effectively and find the right pitch to create value to the to the end user or the person ha that has to buy the solution or the result of, of whatever you're trying to deliver. So, you know, <laughs> that, that being said, yes, it's difficult to get management to engage because they have a lot of competing priorities. Um, one thing we can do when we deliver projects is be, is be as rigorous as possible at driving towards some sort of financial estimate or quantification of the results of the project. If we don't have that, we don't have much to work with. Mm -hmm. So that has to be the, 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 the most basic piece of things. But, you know, projects can have great value beyond what's readily accounted, you know, accounted for using standard, right. you know, accounting practices or management accounting practices. Um, there's, a, there's a lot more to be said with projects in many cases than, than simple financial numbers, but it's a starting point, and you have to build that discipline in. Right. I think that was one of the other sort of subtle uh, hidden assumptions in the way Six Sigma is talked about and taught and presented to management, which is that everything's a project. And yeah. in fact, you can have, everything is not a project, right? We have some ongoing yeah. things that must continue ever after our production system must continue, right? And we need to be able to measure and demonstrate that we're actually creating improvement there and it's yeah. not a project and a little project which may have very little payoff well for example there's this great story um that um I'm trying to remember the name of the fellow the head the former head of uh lei lean uh, institute used to spend time he, he worked at toyota for a number of years gm would send people in to observe them uh, like at the Numi plant, 
right, in California. And the, the VP of finance sent somebody in his department to go observe them and told that person, look, I want you to bring back only improvements that are more than $100,000 a year. That's what, that's what I'm interested in. Not the, not the, you know, these little crappy things. I want the big hits that we can implement. Well, the guy goes there and he sees them in the midst of a project where the union people had requested that the soda machines be moved closer to the break room. The next day, mm -hmm. they had five electricians and, you know, they're doing it. Well, there's, mm -hmm. where's, where's your payback on that? Right? So he couldn't include that in his list to send back to the VP of finance of GM. But, in fact, Toyota was getting huge return on that. You just couldn't measure it because the union people now knew that they were being listened to, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, not, it's yeah. not about projects. It's about something else that obviously was not on the radar of that VP of finance at GM. Well, well, that's very interesting because, because both Lean and Six Sigma are a way of thinking, right? And, and what's, what's funny is that we tend to get into this uh, thought pattern or this, I'll call it a paradigm that, you know, every, as you said, everything is a project, primarily because that's how it's taught, okay? But the thing is, is once you become, become adept at something, you don't need to actually practice it necessarily in exactly the same way that you were taught it. The, the project is a vehicle that's been, or an architecture that's been created for the purpose of teaching people who are unfamiliar with the tools and giving them exposure and letting them get comfortable with the sequence and the way the tools relate and, and how the thinking flows through the, the problem solving and discovering process. But the reality is you don't really want people in the end to practice their way of working in that, in that manner. So, so it's interesting, you know, and again, it gets back to this checklist. I think we, we get so ingrained into a particular habit and the way we apply a, a set of tools that we're not willing to sort of work outside that box and say, you know what, this organization is different than where we started. Now it's time to think more critically about how do we get people to engage in practices simply as a way of working, not as a project-based infrastructure. Now, there's the trade-off. If it's not project-based, it doesn't have a defined beginning and end, and it's going to be very difficult to, to evaluate a, a financial benefit. But on the other hand, you know, you're getting the benefit of a, of a, of a sort of a cultural, you know, wave change in the organization. So I, I think there may be an opportunity here to balance both. And, of course, it's going to vary from one situation to, to the next. But, but the organizations who are starting down this, the Berlin Six and continuous, continuous improvement process certainly want to design their structure around project execution. But I think if they get more mature, they, they, they need to consider a more fluid approach that allows allows people to deploy these tools both in a project architecture and outside of one. So now you, you said something I'm going to uh, push back on. I think you would agree with this, but so let me just mm -hmm. put it out there. Uh, it, you seem to imply that if you don't have a project focus, then you can't measure improvement. Uh, and I heard a different interpretation um, of, of, of uh, process improvement. There is, there is continuous improvement which takes place in something, the kind of work that's done repetitively, on and on and on, like a 
production plant, right? Like mm -hmm. sales and marketing. These every day you have to go do something that makes more people find you, finds more qualified prospects, brings those prospects closer to giving money to you. It's a production process, a production system. Yes. Likewise, you have yes. to find the right raw materials. You've got to bring them in. They've got to be prepared properly and assembled properly according to the schedule and the spec. All those are all production processes and, and, and managements try to use things called key performance indicators. They're going to be making their desired result. But then that system sometimes needs work to fundamentally change the way it works. That's a project, right? So that's breakthrough improvement versus continuous improvement. And you're using at the root, you're using the same principles of how you use your mind, but you're managing it with a beginning, middle, and an end in a project case, and you're managing it with improvement in those data-driven KPIs to determine if we're improving continuously and also to determine if that project created a difference that goes to the financial statements. So what do you think of that characterization? I think it's a fair characterization. I, my concern is that um, we can define a project however we want to define it, right? I mean, the, 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 issue, the issue is you need to have a specific beginning and end to a sequence of activities. We apply projects to address maybe issues or opportunities in those processes. We define those projects as a sequence of events that are being delivered to achieve a specific outcome. Typically, those projects have, you know, one of the KPIs is the, the the beginning and the end, right? The mm -hmm. amount of time it takes. Obviously, there are other, there are other KPIs related to resources required, and and, um, and and then the outcome of the of the project as well is certainly being measured. So it's kind of a maybe the combination of those three elements that are that are helping to define, you know, the the, the uh, boundaries of that project experience. But when you have something with that specific beginning and end, it's much easier to estimate the financial impact for sure. Um, I don't think that, you know, if you're not defining a, a boundaries on, on the event, then you won't know when to stop accumulating metrics to say how well you perform. Now, you can watch incremental changes take place. It, it, you know, let's say, let's say we, we introduce a continuous improvement program um, that has the intended effect of improving some KPI on, on a process. Well, you can apply specific projects within that continuous improvement program, but the program itself then is not the project. The specific projects are, are, are the events that are driving the change. So. Um, I'm, I'm still sort of in this in this place where you have to define a beginning and event, beginning and an end to your you know sequence of events if you want to evaluate the the results of those events you know with a specific starting point. Um, I'm not sure I answered your question, Mike. <laughs> well, if you have a process that's functioning and then. You you can put a process behavior chart on it and statistically determine if there is a change to the capability, the variation, right, the the, the yes. uh, uh, output 
the, the yield of that project. So theoretically, if you have a breakthrough improvement, suppose you are changed the website and it now has a great way for people to get information and self-assess their uh, needs and then reach out to get specific information about solving a problem that then goes to the sales force. And the purpose of that project is to generate a higher quality of lead to the sales force. Well, before you have that project implemented, you have a rate of leads and a quality of the leads that are coming in. After that project is done, you have a different rate of leads and quality of leads that's coming in. You can put that on a process behavior chart and tell that an improvement took place. Right. Right. That's what I'm talking about. Right. So, so, but, but you define what what the beginning and end by by saying when the project is done, you define a, a uh, an end point to that project where you can evaluate. Okay, did we make the changes in the KPIs that we were interested in changing? Now, what defined the end defined the end of that project could be timing, could be reaching a certain level of performance in the KPI. I don't know, but there, but there, there is something specific that defines the end of that project, right? Yeah. Well, there is, but yeah. lots of times those projects end and, um, I guess the, the point is, and I learned this from, um, a guy, a guy who wrote the improvement guide, as a matter of fact, who I hope to have a, uh -huh. on a future show. Uh, his name uh, is, uh, Cliff Norman. Y you, you shouldn't, measure the process when you changed, uh, you know, use the, the t dates, the beginning and end of the project to, d to measure the process in it. You should just be measuring the process and then see if the data tells you that there was a change in the capability. I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fair so statement. That, so that makes you, yeah. Okay, so so okay. geeking out here a little bit, and we just pull it back yeah, to something yeah. that's sort of relevant to sales, and then uh, and then that's going to take us into management, and then uh, then uh, maybe we can wrap up. I was quite shocked uh, back in two thousand and six when I wrote Sales and Marketing: The Six Sigma Way to realize that the Six Sigma industry had precisely the same problems as the sales training industry. The two were structured the same, right? We they sold training. It was relatively easy to sell. It was pretty easy to buy. People understood what it was. They made money by putting buns on seats. Universally, there was a problem of demonstrating results. And so the training and consulting companies tried to sell field coaching, which management, you know, for implementation. And the managements who bought the training often were reluctant to buy the field coaching because they just thought it was a high profit add-on, non unnecessary uh, type thing, um, and that was just the state of the industry, right? Um, and because they're focused on uh, on training, and in in lean, um, many times it has been similar. It's the same kind of thing. So the the solution to that dilemma um, is to, to not allow the focus on the consultant's product, but to change the focus, the consultant has to change the way they work to give it a focus on the customer's problem. And that is a huge shift in mindset. So my question to you is, do you agree? And how do you do that?
in, in your assessment of the, of the similarities of the two industries, I agree 100%. I think it's fascinating that, that, that you sort of, you observe that from the sales and marketing and selling training side of things, because I certainly see it also in the, uh, in the consulting side of stuff. You have to look for the value proposition in anything that you're trying to sell. And one of the advantages I think that we have or could have within the Six Sigma industry, again, is to focus on helping the people quantify the impact of their projects, uh, you know, financially as much as possible. And I realize that, you know, that can create difficulties and challenges down the line as you start to mature as you're in, in the organization with the deploying these tools. Because it, the, the focus on financial quantification um, tends to uh, draw people's attention away from the other benefits as part of the conversations we've already been having. And, and so that can be an, an impedance to driving a, a, a cultural change in the organization. But that being said, um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you 100% that uh, it's, it's difficult to sell this without, you know, understanding exactly what the organization needs as a result of the, uh, of the training and the, and the human resource development that you're proposing. Right. Well, and when you get into sales and marketing, that whole concept of the ability to measure, <laughs> that's a whole new world because they think that they're being measured all the time, but they're not. All they measure is the end result, and so as a, and the net of that is they end up doing the same things over and over and over and expecting different results. And uh, yeah. it's, it's been it's been a big Chinese wall uh, between the uh, the sales and marketing world and solving problems and the operational uh, you know production um, management world where they can solve problems and produce measurable financial results with a lot of credibility. Yes. And that would be a great topic for another um, conversation with you. So uh, we've sort of been chewing the fat here, going around, <laughs> you know, a bunch of different polls and a bunch of different observations. But it, it is useful to step back and say this industry is here for a reason. It does have results. It does have some ramifications that people would prefer not to be the case. There's this story in the industry, or a fairy tale, I mean, uh, not in the industry, but a girl is thrown into a dungeon uh, full of hay and manure. And they check on her, and she's just thrilled. She's digging around in there, and they ask her, why? Why are you so happy? She says, well, if there's all this manure in here, there has to be a pony, right? Well, that's kind of like where we are. There's some really good stuff <laughs> in this operational excellence industry, right? And we've found some of it, but it hasn't really stuck. Uh, and until until it's understood that sales and marketing needs it, engineering needs it, human resources need it, and most importantly, none of those people are going to think they need it until senior management recognizes that they need it. And it's about yeah, how we yeah. think, and, and we're trying to penetrate that that barrier. Um, yeah, if I if I could just add, add to that real quick, Mike, um, I I would agree with you 100. percent And and even to the extent that we try to emulate or replicate the Toyota model for um, lean production, execution, and design, um, 
I, I think we have to recognize that we're dealing with different cultures and different business models, and, and we have to be willing to incorporate our own sense of of judiciously applied continuous improvement tools and methods based on the culture and the method that exists. And I think the same would go for your, your, your sales and marketing processes as well. I think too often we get, again, into our paradigms according to the way we learned it or according to the way it's been advertised that it was practiced. But, but forget that you, know, you have to be creative enough to apply it to your unique circumstances and, and flex and mold and really craft your own deployment and, and approach to match the, the environments you're working in. Yeah, right. Uh, I agree with that. And then how you stay on the rails and make that effective and prove it with data. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that requires a lot of thinking and, and you can't use checklists. You need thinking people. Um, so anyway, I, I love talking about this stuff and trying to solve the problems of the world. I want to thank you for being interested enough to uh, spend this time with me. Um, let's, let's pick another topic uh, because guys like you have really, really valuable experience. And um, I love that. Yeah, That'd be great. I appreciate your, uh, your interest, and in, in, uh, we'll see how the audience reacts. Hopefully they'll ask us, us some questions, and, and this will spur uh, further productive uh, conversations. So, if someone wants to get a hold of you um, at uh, at Argo, how, how would they do that? So the best way um, really is through, through my email. I you know I'm not a very sophisticated um, marketing machine here, so I've got my 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 personal email address at r dot b dot trip. That's t r i p is in Papa p is in Papa at att dot net. Um, also, you can reach me at three one seven. Five zero six four eight four nine um, on my phone, and you know we'll, we'll engage in a conversation. That'd be great. I'd, I'd be happy to talk to anyone. Whether they have questions or ideas or thoughts to share, it's a, it's always a it's a it's a fun field to sort of explore. So yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Mike. It's been great chatting with you. I, I appreciate this. Same here, and we will talk again soon. The Sales Process Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Sales Performance Consultants. Discover how to improve your B2B sales with systems thinking at salesperformance.com.